kicking off a little uh, a mini series out of the life of Gideon. Uh, we've been spending some of our Sunday nights here and the, the end of the year looking at various people in the scriptures and looking at them with a little bit of a different lens that we're not just simply looking at them and saying, you know, be like these people, but rather observing how God is transforming these people. And we've spent a lot of time looking at Jacob. We've spent some time looking at Jeremiah with his calling. We're going to look now at, at Gideon and think about how God calls Gideon. And, and to understand the calling that that he has, you have to understand a little bit of background of what is happening in those days. You're told at the end of Judges chapter 5 that there has been peace in the land of Israel for 40 years. After the prior judge, Deborah, had done her work for being a deliverer and leader of Israel at that time, 40 years of peace then ensued. But as seems to be the case all throughout the history of the Judges, after a little bit of peace goes by, a few years of time goes by, they were told in Judges chapter 6 and verse 1 that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And so the first six verses of Judges 6 just start describing all the troubles that the people of Israel were now going to go through. And we're told as this section introduces it that we are going to see seven years of difficulty, that this outside nation, this foreign nation, Midian, is going to be the source of their problems and their peace is now going to be taken away. But I would like for you to carefully keep verse 1 in your mind for the next three weeks as we look at Gideon, is that it tells us here at the very beginning that God did this. The Lord gave his people into the hand of Midian. And an explanation is given very clearly. Because they had returned to the evil. They were doing evil on the side of the Lord again. It is a fascinating part of Israel's history to look at when they would obey all that God would do for them. And as soon as they start doing evil, all of that peace and prosperity falls apart. And I know from us on our side, we read that and think, boy, you would think they would figure that out. But I suppose in the future, people are going to look at us and go, you know, they should have figured that out. We're the same problem, right? That we forget that if we would just simply follow after God, how much better things would be. And so you're seeing the same picture here. Verse two, the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So imagine now they can't even stay in their own homes. They have to go hide in the hills and the caves and in the mountains, every time the Midianites rise up with this attack for seven years, this is going to happen. Verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would all come up against them and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel or sheep or ox or donkey for they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in and Israel 
was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. I just want you to try to get a feel for how bad the situation is that I would like for you to underscore that this is seven years, but not only are you having to have caves and dens to hide when these attacks would happen, but listen to verses three and four that tell us that the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the East, they would come and attack and devour the whole produce of the land, verse four, and leave no sustenance in it. Now, again, I'm not a farmer, but I do know this. You don't grow crops in a day. And you can just imagine all the work that they did in planting their fields. And no sooner do you finally grow the crops as you finally come around to the harvest time toward the end of the year. And now here comes the Midianites and they come in and they take all of it. They wipe out every bit of it. And they did it again and again and again for seven straight years. They keep coming in and taking all of your produce and all of your food. And if that wasn't bad enough, verse 5, well, at the end of verse 4 as well, and verse 5, sheep, ox, donkey, livestock, they take all that too. There's nothing for seven years. And so they're hiding in the caves. They don't have food. They don't have a way to care for themselves. And you just get a sense when you hear the words of verse 6 that Israel was brought very low. Probably low economically and with prosperity. Probably low also emotionally and physically to keep going through this year after year after year and experience this. And before we look at what God is going to do about this, I would like for us to just think about for a moment This sounds strange, but to think about the severe kindness of God. And those are not two words that we really put together very much. We don't think about severity and kindness in the same breath. Although I won't make it aside, but the Apostle Paul did in Romans where he spoke that way. But the severe kindness of God is happening here in this moment. Because the whole reason for this is to get the people to get their eyes up. That God is allowing Midian to do this. That this is the very hand of God against his own people. Trying to help them see that you have turned away from your God. And because you have done this great evil. I'm doing these things to ultimately spiritually wake you up and turn you back to God. And as much as in our culture and in our day and in our time that we think about severe kindness that that just sounds too strange because to us kindness means latitude softness you allow somebody to do whatever they want to do and that's kindness but if you're a parent you know kindness does not equal let them do whatever they want to do that's not kind to your kids they're going to get killed if you have that kind of kindness Uh, that's not love To simply go, oh yeah, you go ahead and live how you want to live and do what you want to do. No rules, no discipline, no problem. Uh, We know that that's going to be terrible. You're ruining the child. You're setting them on the path of destruction and, and difficulty. And we understand that kindness requires discipline and boundaries. And this is the kindness of God right here in this moment to strip the people of their resources and allow them to go through hardship 
so that they will turn back to God. And that is what God's purpose always is in difficulties and hardships and trials, is trying to get people's eyes upward so that we would push toward God. I'll give you just a reminder from something a series that we did earlier this year. You remember that we saw in the study of Jonah that God will let you run, but he's going to do his work to bring you back. And this is what's happening right here in the days of Gideon is he's allowed Israel to run, but he's going to do his work to bring them back. And that's what he's doing with the nation of Midian. And so you have the people crying out to God in verse six. And I want you to be surprised at what happens next, because I think sometimes, especially if we grew up on the pews and in the classrooms, you might think, okay, the very next thing it says in verse six is the people cried out to the Lord for help. And so then God sent Gideon. And that's not what happens. Look at verse seven. It says, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. I think it is interesting that the people cry out to God for help. And God says, hold on a minute. Before I send you a deliverer, I need to send you a prophet. And I'm going to tell you the message. And this twofold message, very simple. Number one, I rescued you. I I helped you. I, I gave you all that you have. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you into this land. And I told you when you came into the land... Don't follow the gods of the land. Don't fear those gods of the Amorites and all the Canaanites. Don't participate in any of those things. But you'll notice that God ends the message by simply saying, but you didn't listen. You didn't obey the voice of the Lord. And I want you to get a sense of what the prophet is doing, is trying to get Israel to understand life is the way that it is because you didn't obey. Things were going the way they were going in Israel's life because they weren't doing what God said. He said, I rescued you and saved you. Did you give your life to me? No, you have gone after the foreign gods. You're living for them. In fact, that will become very clear in just a few verses. And so you're seeing a picture of God saying, you need to hear my words before I send deliverance. Don't have time, but great foreshadowing right here. Before God sends a deliverer, he sends a prophet. Before he sends Christ as a deliverer, he's got to send a prophet. He's sending the greatest prophet, John. This is the way God works. I've got to tell you what's going on before I'm going to rescue you. I've got to tell you what's happening. And so here this is, is, is being displayed. Before I send my rescuer, you need to hear what I have to say. I rescued you. I saved you. And I brought you into this land. And I am the Lord your God, but you have not obeyed my voice it is now at this moment that we are now introduced to a man named Gideon verse 11 now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah which is belonging to Joash the Abizrite and hit while his son Gideon 
was beating at wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. All right, now you got to get a sense of what that just meant because we can read that and go, okay, yeah, here's this guy and he's threshing the, the wheat. This is a really strange situation. If you were in ancient Near Eastern times and you read about a guy who was threshing wheat in a wine press, you would say you're in the wrong location. It's not the place where you do that. And there's a reason why. Because for threshing the grain, you need an open space where wind can come in so that as you're threshing the wheat, you're able to get the lighter chaff to blow away so that the grain that you want falls to the ground. But in a wine press, well, you're blocked off by the rocks. And yours, they're stomping grapes in this little rock crevice area so that the, the grape juice can all begin to flow down. You're not in an open space. You're hiding in a rock formation area. And that's what he's doing. And it makes sense when you read verse 11 why he's doing it. What did we just read a few verses earlier? What happens every time they have grain and produce and anything good? The Midianites come and they come in and they take all the food. So he can imagine Gideon, he's able to get some wheat. They were able to harvest a little bit. He goes and tucks it away and he's hiding and he's over in the wine press and he's trying to do it over there to try to get the wheat out so that the Midianites don't see it happening. In verse 12, an angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and simply says, The Lord is with you. O mighty man of valor. (laughs) I have to think that when that angel said that to Gideon, Gideon looked around and went, who are you talking to? (laughs) Mighty man of valor. He is hiding in a wine press with his wheat, trying to keep it from the enemies so that they don't come in and take it from him. And here comes this gentleman who says, hey, mighty man of valor, God is with you. (laughs) Unbelievable picture that is given to here as the God himself with this angel makes this proclamation to him. But I want you to think about that this is the way God operates. What I want you to think about and see is that what God often does is he does not look at who you are right now, but what you're going to do. That happens a lot. That God knows what he can do through you. A couple of my favorite instances of that. Here's a man named Abram. And God says, your name's now Abraham, which means father of many nations. He had no children when that happened. (laughs) I only imagine, you know, names meant things back then. And you walk around, introduce yourself to people. Hello, I'm father of many nations. Really? How many kids do you have? I don't have any. But God knows what he's going to do with Abraham. Even though Abraham doesn't have one single child, he's the father of many nations. And God knows that's what he's going to accomplish. How about Simon? Jesus says, Simon, your name's now Rock. I'm calling you Peter from now on. And it's not like when you read the gospel accounts and from that moment on, he was a rock. No, all the disciples forsook Jesus and fled at the arrest. He's going to deny Jesus three times. It's not the name change in the present, but what God knows he's going to do in the future. 
And that's happening right here to Gideon. Hey, mighty man of valor. Well, Gideon is far from a hero at this moment. He is far from being a courageous individual, but God knows what he is ultimately going to do. Now, I want you to get a sense of how Gideon responds to that. After this declaration, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Listen to what Gideon says in verse 13. He says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. I want you to see Gideon's perspective at this moment. Here is the angel of the Lord saying to Gideon, one, you're a mighty man of valor. Well, he'll deal with that in just a minute. But then he touches on the other part. The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And his response is, if the Lord is with us, then why doesn't God do something? Why don't see God doing anything? What, What is going on in these circumstances? What has happened to us? And why are these things happening? Verse 13, where are his deeds? Where is what's happened where our ancestors told us about the great works of God? And notice he really has a rebuttal to the angel. The angel says, The Lord is with you, and and his response at the end of verse 13 is, the Lord has forsaken us. I want us to think about this scene for a moment, because I want you to notice what a dangerous way of thinking this is, and it's this. So often we evaluate God by what we can see him doing. We make our evaluations on if God is with us, if he's doing his work, if he's keeping his word, if he's fulfilling his promises, if he's doing his plan based on what I can see in my life right here. And that's what Gideon's doing. Gideon is saying, well, when I look at my life, I don't see God. I don't see him doing great things. I don't see his power. Our forefathers told us about the great works of God, but he's left us. And I want us to note that the angel of the Lord is essentially saying to him, you don't even begin to understand what God's doing right now. In fact, remember what verse one said. What's the reason why they've had these seven years? God. God is the reason why this is happening. And what is so fascinating to me about this is Gideon is saying God's the problem. You know what the angel of the Lord is saying? God's not the problem. He's saying you're the problem. You fail to see how your sins have put you in this predicament. You fail to see how your sins have separated you from God. They don't see that their sin has blocked God. All they're looking at is, well, things aren't going the way that we want them to go. And they're not understanding that that's not the way to evaluate God. That doesn't mean that he's not with us. It doesn't mean that he is not at work. It doesn't mean that he's not accomplishing his purposes. But so often our evaluation of God is, are things going good? And if things aren't going good, then God must not be with us. 
And Gideon is being told, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And so he's working to change Gideon's particular understanding about those things. Now notice in verse 14, the Lord, interesting shift, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not, I now send you. That might be one of the strangest responses on the surface to read because we're not used to reading that. Here is Gideon saying, why has the Lord forsaken us? Well, the angel of the Lord has just called him a mighty man of valor and the Lord is with him. Okay, well, the Lord is with you. And now the Lord says to Gideon, go in the strength you have. You say, wait a minute. Aren't we not supposed to go in in our own strength? Aren't we supposed to be relying on God's strength? Isn't that a curious thing to say? To tell some human, hey, you know that strength that you have? You go out there and do it. You go out there and save Israel. That's what he's telling them to do in verse 14. Go in the might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. You go and do it. I want you to get a sense that Gideon is moved to exactly where God's trying to move him. Look at verse 15. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I want you to notice that Gideon says, I don't have any strength. You want me to go in the strength that I have and go deliver Israel? I'm the least of everything. I, I am the weakest of my clan and the tribe of Manasseh and the least of my father's house. By the way, important slide. How many times do we see God come to people and they give excuses why they can't do it? I think we just did that with Jeremiah, right? Yeah, we did. And we talked about Moses. Yep. Here we go again. Uh, here's God going, all right, go and do it. Oh, I can't do that. I'm the least. I'm the weakest. I don't know what to do. I, you know, I'm not the right guy for all of this. But I want you to notice what God says in, now in verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Do you see what God just did right there? Hey, Gideon, mighty man of valor, won't you go out there and whip him? Go save Israel. He goes, I can't do that. There's no way I can deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And God goes, that's right. (laughs) That's exactly right. And the only way you're going to do it is because I'm with you. That's the very answer that he gives. I love that verse 16 is not the Lord saying, oh, Gideon, you underestimate yourself. You are quite a strong guy and you're really good with the sword. And boy, your father taught you well. You got some armor back there at the house, right? And I think you'll do a really great job. Get on out there and be a general and lead the No, no. He absolutely confirms everything that Gideon said. Gideon goes, I can't do that. That's right. But he says, but didn't I tell you I'd be with you? That's all you need. That's all you need. So often what God has to do for us is to show us that we can't do it ourselves. Oh, how many times God has to show us that we cannot do this alone by our own strength, by ourselves. Over and over again, God has to show us 
It's not going to be by your strength, but you need God to be with you. You will only succeed if God is with you. Try to do it yourself. You will not succeed over and over and over. God has to hit this to us again and again and again. It's not by your, your own strength. No, you can't do it yourself, but you can do it by the hand of God. This is again what Jesus was getting at as he kicked off his sermon on the mount and his first beatitude of blessed are the poor in spirit. What God is always trying to do is to move us to a place of humility to see that it's not our strength, but it is God's strength. It's not our work. It is God's work. And God is trying to tell us, I will be with you. Now, wouldn't you think the very next thing would be, and so then Gideon got up and got his sword and got his guys, and here we go, we're going to go fight the Midianites, right? No, no, we're not ready for that yet. There's something important that needs to be dealt with first. I want you to go to verse 25, and I want you to notice what now the Lord tells him to do. It's the same day, it's that night, we're told in verse 25, that night, The Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you've cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. I want you to notice the scene that happens. And I want you to think about this. When you read verse 25, Gideon is told, you need to go take two bulls to go tear down this Baal idol. How big of an idol do you think it is? If you need two bowls to go tear that thing down, this is not some, oh yeah, you know, would you please go pick up that little micro statue out there in the street and go toss it in the trash can? You're going to need two hefty animals to tear this thing down. Do you get a sense of where Israel is and its idolatry? We have this huge Baal idol somewhere in the midst of the town. This is like the town idol, and next to it is the Asherah pole. And not only was it going to take two bulls, notice that Gideon doesn't do it by himself. He has to take ten guys with him to go do this. This is a job, to be able to go tear down this idol. And I want you to notice what, what, what Gideon understands here. Does he think he's going to be the town hero by doing this? And they're going to run out, yay, Gideon, we're so glad you finally tore down these foreign idols and built an altar to the true and living God and set it in the very location and offered up this bull as a sacrifice. We're so happy for you. There's a reason verse 27 says he did it at night. In fact, when you jump down to verse 30, you'll notice when they find out the whole town's about to kill him. They're going to kill him for this. There is no hero in this. There is no, yay, Gideon, he did the right thing. He, he did the righteous thing. He's standing with God. What a guy of spiritual strength. They are going to kill him. And I just want you to understand, he knows it. That's why he's doing it at night. And friends, you're being told something very important about the courage it takes 
to tear down idols. That is no easy feat. The courage that it takes to tear down these idols, especially with a nation and a city that is so steeped in idolatry that he knows he's not going to be their spiritual hero, but he's going to be the villain for doing the right thing. Here's the observation I want to make is, I don't think we should read verse 27 and go, oh, silly Gideon, what a fearful guy. You know, he didn't have enough guts. He had a whole lot of courage to go do this. This is quite a task that he needs to do. And friends, one of the reasons I think we are unwilling to deal with our idols is because we are afraid of the repercussions. We are afraid of what's going to happen. We're afraid of what our friends are going to do to us or what our family is going to us. We will often lack the courage to address important spiritual concerns because we're afraid of what they're going to say, what they're going to do. We won't make changes in our family because we're afraid they're going to make our lives miserable. Oh, if I made those changes, you don't even know what my parents or my kids or my spouse or my grandparents or whoever it is or these people in my life, you don't understand how difficult they're going to make my life. And I just want you to feel that you're standing at the crossroads of where Gideon is standing right now. He's told to go tear down some idols. He's told to use his father's equipment, (laughs) two bowls for his family, and go tear down that Asherah pole, and then build a new altar on the location. Oh, and by the way, then take one of those bowls and offer it up. Burnt offering, none of it left. Not a dinner tonight, burn it up. All the courage that it takes to tear idols out of our lives. It takes courage, my friends, to stand against your family and against your friends and to serve the Lord in the way you know you should. And I want to underscore it in another way as well. Please remember that Gideon is not, you know, in some Gentile nation trying to do the right thing in the face of a world that's wrong He's doing it around a people that are supposed to be the people of God who've lost their way. And you might be surrounded by a whole group of the people of God who've lost their way. And you've got to be the one to tear down the idols and say, this is not how we're going to serve God. This is not what God has asked us to do. We must serve God no matter what. And that's the picture that's being given here is why didn't we just jump to let's go out to battle, except that if you want God to be with you and you want God to save you, you've got to smash the idols. And all of us have them. I know we all like to pretend, oh, I don't have any idols. There's no there's no bail in my closet. There's no Asherah pole in, 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 in the bedroom. There's, there's no uh, statues all over the place. I don't have those things. But friends, you don't have to have a physical graven image to have idols. Idols are anything that begin to tug our heart away from God. And here is a huge picture of that. That God reminds us again and again that he is not going to be with us if we refuse to tear down and smash the idols that we have in our hearts and build a true altar to God. Jesus said that in a super simple way. No one can serve two masters. He just said it like that. 
Very concise. You can't serve two masters. You cannot have a divided heart with God. You are either going to follow what God says or you're going to follow after these idols. But I want you to think about this scene now. Remember what Gideon said. It's the title of the lesson tonight. He asked, why has all this happened to us? And I'd like to boil down an answer that we're seeing God show right here. God's saying, have you looked at the idols in your life? Have you looked and seen? I mean, imagine Gideon is talking to an angel of the Lord and said, we just don't know why God has forsaken us and why all this has happened. There's a monster idol in the middle of the town. And they can't understand why God is not with them. Now, how many times we have these idols in our lives and we go before God? Well, I don't understand. Why is this happening? But have we been unwilling to tear out the clear idols that we have in our lives and in our hearts? Let's round out this section in verses 28 to 32, because I just want to simply show you that basically trouble comes from all of this. Trouble is going to come. When you stand on your faith, when you stand for doing what is right. Verse 28, the men of the town rose early in the morning. Behold, the altar of the Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. Just want you to notice Gideon did exactly what he was told to do. He did exactly what he was told to do. He tore that thing down and walked out into the city square. That thing smashed in pieces. The Asherah poles cut in half. And here is this altar to God and there is a burning bowl on it. Verse 29. Who has done this thing? (laughs) This is very interesting. So they start asking one another. Anybody see some guys at night tearing down this thing? And apparently some people did because verse 29 they say... Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. So verse 30, the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside him. Can you imagine? This is the people of God. People of God said he needs to die because he's worshiping God. He's doing what God said. He needs to die for that. How dare he do something like worship God and follow him exactly as he says. It's the people of God saying this. Verse 31, Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. For if he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. What a great answer by his father. His father says, you know, if Baal's a God, he can figure this out. (laughs) If Baal is who he says he is, He'll deal with my son. And I want you to notice verse 32. Now from that day on, everybody calls Gideon Jerubael, which means let Baal contend with him because he broke down the altar. The people of God are all looking at him going, Baal's going to kill this guy. Baal's going to get him because he tore down the altar. So we're not going to call him Gideon anymore. We're going to say Baal's going to get him. That's what we're going to call him every day in the streets. That's what they're calling him. And as a stunning, but I want you to see Did God take care of him? Yeah, he did. It's such an important question. Is God going to take care of you for doing what is right? Friends, how many times do we see in the scriptures God saying, if you will make a stand, if you'll do the right thing, if you'll do what I tell you to do, I'm going to take care of you. 
And that is ultimately what our faith is about, is our faith is believing that God will take care of us for doing what is right. You see that in the life of Daniel. Daniel just says, God's going to take care of it. I'm going to do what's right. He could have waited, waited out 30 days and not prayed for 30 days. He said, I'm not waiting 30 days to pray to God. I'm going to open the window right up and start praying on day one. And I'm going to let God take care of it. How about Daniel's three friends? All you have to do is just bow down and when the music plays, can you imagine what that looked like when you, it says all the problems came from this grand statue of Nebuchadnezzar that he had, had built. And when the music plays, everybody bows down and they all start bowing down and there are three guys that don't. Can you imagine the intense eyeballs on you? When thousands of people are all bowing down at the music, and you're just standing there going, nope, not going to do it. Who would not feel the crushing weight to go? What do they say? God will take care of it. God will figure it out. You love that answer that they give. We believe God's going to deliver us, but if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to this thing. <laughs> Light the fires up. Don't care. Make the furnace hot. Doesn't matter. Not going to do it. Nebuchadnezzar gives him a second chance. Don't care. Not going to do it. You know, Jesus said that to us. He told us you've got to seek first. You've got to seek his ways first. And there's going to be a whole lot of pressure not to. You're going to be under an awful lot of scrutiny not to. And just again to emphasize, and that scrutiny might come from the supposed people of God. That's what Gideon is up against right here. It's the supposed people of God who want him to die, who think that he is worthy of judgment. But faith is in doing the right thing and trusting God will take care of us. Let me give you two passages and then we'll end end the lesson tonight. What a great summary of this idea. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. It's as he rounds out this chapter of faith. He says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the deserts and the mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Simple question. Why did they go through all that? They believed that God would take care of it. They believed that God would take care of it. And so they gave their lives. And so, friends, the difficulty for us is will we throw out our idols and step out in faith? Will we believe that we need to tear down the sins and the problems and the weaknesses and rip those temptations out and get those things out of our lives so that we can step out in faith? as God wants us to, to believe that God will be with us and give us the strength that we need to go forward. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You can be strong. And God wants you to look at your strength and go, yeah, but I can't be strong. And he goes, exactly. But you can be strong in Christ. And I want you to have his strength. And he will give you that strength if you'll tear down those big idols and step out in faith and follow him with all of your heart and see what God will be able to do for you to go forward. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the life of Gideon. And Lord, we're so thankful that we're able to see how you came to him and started transforming his life, transforming his understanding of you and changing his faith. And Lord, we pray that we would we would see that. We would see that you come to us even in our weaknesses and our fears. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the idols that we possess in our lives. That you would give us the courage and the strength to tear those things down. And Lord, when we ask questions like, why is this happening? May we first look to ourselves and consider, are there things that we need to get out of our hearts and out of our way, out of our lives that stand in the way of serving you and loving you as we ought to? Lord, show us those idols and give us the strength to remove them and help us to go forward boldly in faith, ready to experience whatever it takes and whatever we may lose, whatever needs to be sacrificed. Because in the end, Lord, we know that being with you is worth it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus tonight, to turn away from sins and walk with him in faith. We would love to help you make that uh, decision that this, this very night and to begin to think about how God was starting to change Gideon's life so that he would walk in faith and follow him faithfully. We hope you'll make that same decision tonight. Can we help you do that once you come while we stand and while we sing?